Yo fam. Hey, this is a special episode. This is a buddy I met on Instagram and him and I have really connected and uh, he's got an, uh, a single coming out. Face Off 2020. Uh, here we go again. It's featuring his daughter and uh, I want you to check him out. I linked uh, Spotify and his YouTube stuff and uh, I'm just really excited for him. I- I'm really glad that he's able to reconnect with his dream uh, of being an artist, of being a creative, a hip hop, um, uh, hip hop artist. And, uh, check my boy out, Ricky J green, AKA dollar green. Uh, check out the links and, uh, tell him what's up. Tell him you heard him, uh, heard his stuff from the high cost of anonymity podcast. I hope you guys enjoy. Love you. Ricky Green, there he is. What's up? Can you hear me okay? I can, yes, sir. Good. Hey, what up, fam? This is Preston. This is uh, a good buddy that we actually uh, met on Instagram, and this is one of the funnest things and, and uh, most rewarding things for me is I get to find people that we uh, we actually connect and have conversations outside of podcasting. Why don't you introduce yourself, Ricky? Um, yo, he said, what up, fam? What up, fam? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm Ricky Green, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, yeah, um, I'm just here, man. I'm sober. I've been sober. Um, you I'm sober? a small business owner and I, I make music and I'm a, I'm a dad and a husband and, um, I'm living the dream, Preston. Like the it's dream, cool. huh? Yeah, it's dope. <laughs> what, uh, when did you get sober? Uh, April 20th, 2006, 420. 420, holler, holler to boy. Yeah, it uh, was an accident, but that is how it landed. Of course, so. of course. For, you said 420, what, what year? 06. 06, nice. So, um, one of the things, what we typically do here is we kind of use your, your uh, story as a bit of a through line, and we cover all kind of topics like anonymity. We cover, uh, you know, counseling, group work, uh, intimacy, vulnerability, step work, all kind of variations on um, the purpose is to have listeners hear something that may open the door for them to say, maybe I should get some help. And, I, and I'm, I'm a big proponent that the vast majority of people will never need high level, high levels of, of work and therapy, like inpatient or drug rehab, et cetera. Most people, they just need to talk to someone. They just need to maybe do some marriage counseling. They just need to kind of work through some stuff one-on-one with a therapist for a couple of years just to become a better parent, uh, husband, wife, et cetera. And so, um, and that's, that, that's the purpose. Why don't, why don't you start off telling, uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and how you grew up and how you end up getting sober. Yeah, I can do that. So uh, I may, this, I may just go on and on. So you just like oh, yeah. chime in anytime you need to. Um, I first want to, want to like speak to everything you just said, because, um, I think the coolest part of this whole thing is like me and you, like we, we kind of have the same belief system set up around everything you just described. Like, I, I feel like there's, there's, um, I think the, the NA text says there's no therapeutic, the, there's no therapeutic value or the therapeutic value of, of one act helping another was without parallel. Without parallel, it says. Yeah. And then, and, you know, AA, of course, you know, NA spawned from, you know, the, what uh, Bill and Bob started in 35 
and with the 12 step process and they their way of saying that was nothing so much ensures immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics think about that that's in working with others right so but we're not we're not talking about that 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 was written in 1935 it's 2020 what they did i'm sober off of right so um I didn't have to spend 20 grand. I don't even know what treatment centers cost that bill insurance, but like, I didn't have to spend that um, because it's, it's free. You know what I mean? So mm. I, I love what you said. Um, and I love that we're on the same page with all that. Um, so like my story, man, I, I'm going to, I'm going to bounce around. I don't like to, I like to freestyle. Like, you know, I knew we were talking today as of like 45 minutes ago because I'm <laughs> terrible about scheduling my life. Um <laughs> So I like that, though, like had I known, had I remembered we were doing this today, I would have still taken the same approach in that I like to freestyle. I mean, I like to be right here right now. I don't want to prepare a speech. I don't want to, you know, attempt to pull off some eloquent masterpiece of, you know, I just go off what's, you know, what's present for me right now. And um, I think it's I. I don't know. I don't know your audience. Right. But the for a person who anybody who would who would listen to this and what I would have, to, I think the, the best thing to say for or to connect with is is the person like, man, I came around when I was 19 and and I was here for four years before here. Around AA and NA and in, in and around people who are sober and in and around talk of what addiction is and in and around talk of what alcoholism is. I was doing that for four years. Um, because I, I, you know, I got in some trouble, which I'll, I'll bring that up in a second. And, but were you um, sober or you were just having to go to meetings because of probation? I had to go to meetings because of probation. I, I'm going to do like some story stuff sure. in a second too, just to like get you familiar. But, um, the biggest thing for me, cause when I was there for that four years that I, that I was there, I was convinced that this was a really good thing that this group of people had for themselves. But like, I was, it just wasn't for me. Like I'm not this person. Right. I'm not addicted. Yeah. I don't have alcoholism. Yeah. Um, so. But so um, growing up, man, it was just me and mom. Right. Dad and mom divorced when I was five. So uh, dad. So they got um, they got pregnant when they were like 19 and 17. So very young. Yeah. Dad was a little older. Um, so they got pregnant young and dad was dad was. Um, he's I, I'll. I'll qualify him as one of us if you, if you know, what I mean. so, um, and, and he was young and, um, mom was, uh, mom was mom. And they, so it took me a lot of work in my recovery to get to the place that I see this at now. But, um, growing up, I was, I understood that mom and dad got divorced. This is my, you know, my perception as a child, mom and dad got divorced um, dad doesn't care about us. Um, he's, he doesn't have time for us. We're not important to dad. Mm. Um, and it's just me and mom and, um, men are, men are bad, right? It's not men, men suck. Like they, they hurt people <laughs> um, and we were poor. So it, it was me and mom. And very early on, I, I learned stuff about, you know, what life meant. Um, so we, we were in a trailer park. It was me and mom, mom, Mom worked her butt off. I, f- I feel like mom had this idea. So dad took something from her. Um, he took her whole life from her because she had this idea that the, the American dream, she's going to get married, have a kid, 
grow up white picket fence. It's going to be great. Yeah. Well, her and dad didn't get along and, and she left that with, with the belief that dad took that from her. Right. So she's very bitter. Um, very, um, it was, um, yeah. So not, not a lot of, of growing past that. Right. So, right. So up, I, you know, I saw that. I witnessed that. Mom was, mom has mental illness, right? She was depressed, right? Mom was always, mom was always crying. Mom was always losing it. So, and I just wanted mom to feel better, right? Like, so as a kid, like I kind of, it was like this role reversal, right? Where, um, mom's losing it, and I, and I'm eight, nine, ten, seven, all throughout that, right? I'm so I'm telling mom it's going to be okay. Like we're going to be all right, mom. Like you know, it'll get better, and maybe the next guy won't be a jerk because what mom did after that was she tried to she she gave everything she had to um to cultivate that reality right the the white picket fence so she was trying to find a dad right she was trying to find a good man who could um who could bring that spark bring that dream back alive for her and her kid right Um, and every one of them always failed the test they cheated on her specifically um you know, looking back, I realized, you know, she was fishing in the wrong pond, right? You know, <laughs> right. you yeah. bars, they're probably not, uh, you, know, you know, I'm just saying, not to judge people who go to bars, but if you're, you know. So she'd bring these guys home um, from a bar. They would be serious for three weeks and six months. And, and ultimately, they always cheated. And it was always me and mom on the couch and mom's losing. And I'm like, mom, it's going to be fine, right? Yeah. So that's childhood, bro. That's it. Um there were, so dad was, you know, he wasn't dead. He didn't disappear. He was still in the same city. Um, and I would go to his mother's on the weekends, right? There's this joint custody, but that looked like me going to granny's house. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with granny and mom, granny on dad's side. Right. So, um, so that, that was how that went, man. I know, um, by the time, you know, that's how that's, that just kept going in sixth grade. Mom met the one, like he was the one, he was the champion. So I was pretty hip on, you know, I was pretty sharp early on. Um, and I, you know, he came around and he had a, a shiny new Monte Carlo and a boat and a motorcycle. And he had a lot of friends and like, this was my, that now, now I've got a role model. Right. Yeah. And it, very quickly I understood what he was doing. Even in sixth grade, I realized, you know, this dude's selling weed and yeah. I don't know what else, but, he was selling weed for sure. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I just, I observed from afar, man, I got, I figured out what was going on. I realized that there was, um, you know, it was, it was a drug dealer. Right. So by the time I got to seventh grade where I'm from, everything merges, you get four different schools that merge into one middle school and you meet all these new people. Well, I met new people and I heard them talking about weed and I knew where to get it. And here's the thing, Preston, here's what I, understand my understanding now of what alcoholism what addiction is to me i got some of the best treatment um that is available in in the world man and it was free um it was at a homeless shelter and um so i I learned a lot from from that 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 threw me off though because i started pondering that part of my life what what do you mean you where's the homeless shelter play in uh, that's so it's coming. Uh, that's oh, gotcha, long gotcha, gotcha. later on in the story, but so I, yeah, I jumped up to not in the seventh grade. You're talking, you're talking later. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. Yeah. So that's what I meant about when I share my story, I'll yeah. just be freestyling. Um, but so 
looking back, what I realized now, what I, I learned later on, I, I went to prison and then to treatment and I learned some stuff that I'm about to share with you about my seventh grade self. So, sure. um, when I was in seventh grade, like what I, what I realized was there's always been this, what I understand about addiction and alcoholism. Um, there's always been this void, this, um, this inadequacy, this, uh, I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority or inferiority complex. Yeah. That's how they describe it. So, uh, but really what's on top with that is I feel like I am less than everybody. Right. I, t- I got these stories that I make up and part of it was from what I learned. Right. I, I, I saw at school, I saw people who had, you know, I wore air buddies. So that's what they called them. I got made fun of for my air buddies. Right. My Kmart shoes. <laughs> right. And, um, and um, so, you know, that reinforced my inadequacy. Um, and, you know, I was always on free lunch or reduced lunch because of our income. I, I knew what was up with that. Right. I seen other kids with money and they were at snack machines. Right. Um, all those things like I realized now was my contributed to like to my alcohol, to my condition, bro, mm-hmm. to my, to my spiritual malady, because that's what we're dealing with. Right. A spiritual malady, a spiritual sickness. Mm-hmm. Um, and this in seventh grade, before any drugs were, were even introduced, I was hip to how, um, how outside I felt, right. Mm -hmm. How, how different I was, um, and different in a bad way. Like I was less than everybody. That's, that's what I believe to be true. Not a a part of exactly for sure. And I had to hide that and protect that, that I really knew that truth because if anybody validated that, it would be even worse, you know? Yeah. So, but it's very important, uh, because, Something happened, man. When when I found those kids at school, um, I went in mom and, and dude's room and I, I took some of his, his roaches. They kept ashtrays full of roaches. Mm-hmm. And I took those to school and I sold them for $5 in seventh grade. <laughs> Dude, that's, that's um, money right there. Bro, like it, I laugh about it now and like it is funny. But what it did, it was the first it was, I fell in love, bro. Uh, it was the first time that I ever felt good enough. It was the first time I ever felt real power. Right. It was the first time I felt whole. So here's the thing, Preston, this whole time there was this problem, this, this, this something missing. And when I did that, I found the solution. It went away. It was gone. Like I, I actually fixed it. And I absolutely became obsessed from that day forward on filling that hole because what happened was the next day it would be present again and I had to fill it up again. And so from seventh grade, when I took those roaches, then, you know, he had all his bags were already measured out and weighed out. And I was in seventh grade, I was smart enough to understand that if I took a pinch out of each one, no one would ever know. Right. So it went from $5 to $25. And by fresh, my freshman year in high school, I'm not gloating because I don't, I don't take pride in how much I poisoned society. But by my freshman year in high school, I was, I had it all. Like there was no drug you could not get through my distribution chain I had created. Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, um, what's, what's interesting about uh, what you're talking about is oftentimes you hear, particularly around the drug and alcohol 12 step recovery conversation is, People talk about the time when they felt whole, when the knot in their stomach went away or when they the, the inadequ- inadequacies went away. Usually that's coupled with they take a drink, they, they do a drug, et cetera. What was interesting about what you said was you actually uh, participated in a transaction, which is entrepreneurial, 
right? It could have been, you know, uh, candy or any other hustle. And you had the goods. They wanted to be around you. You were able to help them out. Wow, Ricky, you're the man, whatever. And you, you, you know, you talked about that hole being filled from that transaction. And it just so happened because of where you come from and the models that you were you were shown. It just happened to be around drug dealing. And a lot of people do that. You know, one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite personalities, Gary V, he talks about some of the best entrepreneurs where it used to be drug dealers, which is true because this is entrepreneurship in the beginning uh, early on. But that's that's also like this social acceptability you know, that you maybe gain from that. Or now people are always coming to you because you got the goods and you, you mentioned power and, and, and the ability to be um, resourceful. Uh, uh, this, this idea of, you know, seeking affirmation or seeking this people pleasing sense that you, you know, felt as a kid that you're, you weren't good enough because your dad wasn't around, but now you are because now everybody wants to be around you. But the problem with that, that outside stuff changing the way you feel is, as you said, the next morning you wake up and the hole's there again. So you got to keep, you can't just stop doing it. Yeah. Which is how you ended up, you know, uh, you know, building this out, which, and on one hand, it's great good entrepreneurship, very smart, you know, but on the other hand, yeah. you're poisoning society by participating in, you know, in drug distribution. So anyway, I just want to point that out. When did you actually start using the drugs? Had, had you started when you were messing with the roaches or was it kind of one in the same? Yeah. What happened? It, it was coupled with that, but yeah. the, the high, wasn't anywhere near, didn't have near the impact that, that, that what I felt when I was at that snack machine, because I wasn't just buying snacks. See, I'd never been to the snack machine. I hated those kids. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So now I'm at the snack machine and I'm making it rain on my people. You know what I'm saying? Everybody gets a bag of chips. Everybody gets a Coke. Like I was the man. And that's what I fell in love with. Um, but yeah, so then what's interesting to me is, is how spiritual, spiritual truths work, Preston, because the same way that whole was always there. And, and, I, it's still present, bro. Wait to a way lesser degree. But but what we really have is a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. So the same way that works back then. See, I've always had a problem and that was the solution. Well, the problem was that solution was injurious. It caused me a lot of it ruined, destroyed my life. The solution I had for my problem was destroying my life. Mm. And what happened was it was the we always had to up the ante. Yeah. Um, because that no longer worked. What I explained to you about feeling good at the snack machine. Yeah. Now I needed to up it and it, it was marijuana and it was prescription drugs and it was crack cocaine. I mean, I'm, I smoked crack cocaine for years. Mm. Um, um, and then, you know, by 15, so that, and all that was, none of that was working anymore. Um, and then bro, at 15, we found out how to, how to cook meth. And then it was, that's when I found it, that, when I did meth for the first time and, and participated in that whole process, that was the next thing that made me feel as whole as that initial seventh grade transaction did. Right. right? I now I had found the real solution, right? right. This is the one. Um, one thing, one thing I like about, uh, and, and one of my, the, the, I, I actually got clean in, in, in a, and one of the reasons there's a couple of reasons, but, 
one thing that I like about the verbiage in Narcotics Anonymous is they talk about using. They don't talk about a specific substance. And I also, when I say, I actually just wrote it in my journal, is that I will back myself so far into a corner where the only way out is to use. And I remember when my sponsor first told me that, and he had like nine or 10 years clean, and I had uh, maybe a year. And I'm like, what? so, so you're going to use? Like, what's it? And he goes, no, man, we don't always use drugs. We use people, places, and things, anything to change the way we feel, even if it makes us feel worse. And what was interesting, and I talk so, I feel like it's so important to talk about the use of outside substances and stimuli. It doesn't necessarily have to be my illegal mind and mood altering drugs. It could be what you PlayStation. What's up? PlayStation. Play, PlayStation, <laughs> Netflix, yeah. uh, you know, the opposite sex, working out, whatever. And that that's what's I've never really talked to someone where I was able to kind of place the you know that outside stimuli of being the man and the progression that also ensued when you rely on something outside of yourself to fix the God-sized hole inside. In other words, it yeah. started with the snack machine, and then it started with probably higher amounts of weed, and then you layer on other weed, and then it it's like you had to keep up in the ante because just like the one beer did it in the beginning, it now took 12 beers, and then you had to layer on cocaine, which a lot of people talk about the substance progression, but you're explaining a progression that is also an outside substance and influence. Um, and it's just, it just mirrors this instinct for drug addicts and non-drug addicts and alcoholics to use outside things, people, places, things, relationships, work, affirmation, you know, PlayStation, Netflix to try and fix that just, little kid inside which we talked a, a little bit about before we got on but anyway it's interesting that progression has happened not only with drug use but also with your with your people pleasing or attention seeking or the you know to be the man seeking right yeah um, it's interesting but so so you found meth you started cooking it and now you had another level yeah for sure and and the, you know that's and i think what you described is the that is the spiritual malady, right? There is a, there's a chemical process that, that happens, you know, like I've, I've done a lot of, I'm no doctor. Um, I'm no neuroscientist, but I, I, I wanted to understand what was wrong with me. So I, I went down the rabbit hole, bro. And I, you know, I learned about um, uh, chronic stress in, in, in children and how, you know, the kidneys produce uh, uh, glucocorticoids, right. Which goes straight to the reward center of my brain. Right. And, and that's where this uh, nucleus accumbens is. Right. And, and there's this, it, it, that thing um, that's in the reward center becomes hypersensitive to dopamine. My point in all that is dopamine isn't produced by the substance. That's a chemical in my brain. Right. Mm. So the behavior in my life triggers that chemical response. So, and, and, and that's the physical aspect. Right. But it's still, it's always been for me, my understanding, my belief system is it's always spiritual in nature. Like you're yeah. describing, right. Is, yeah. is it's always, like you said, I'm feeling a God sized hole with material things, right. Whatever that may be. Yeah. Now, when I did introduce the chemicals, it just progressed. The progression is what changed, right. right? The, the process was still the same as yeah. far as what's going on chemically in my mind, in my body, yeah. uh, not my mind, but in my body. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, once we started doing the meth thing, man, it was, um, it changed everything because now we had, 
virtually an unlimited supply of our drug of choice. And um, it, it, so it, it progressed bad from there. So by the time I was 19, that was when I was 15. By the time I was 19, somehow I graduated high school. Um, I did do that. Probably because you were doing a uh, homemade Adderall and you were able to uh, get your <laughs> shit done. Yeah. Well, school was a priority because that was my social circle. That's where I got my, that's where I got my money. You know what I mean? So I guess that's probably part of it, but, um, so man, that progressed really fast, dude. Like, um, uh, it's not important that I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm going into that place in my brain. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm leaving stuff out. Of course I'm going to leave stuff out, but, um, just a a ton of stuff happened, man. And I'd like to go ahead and jump towards the end. Um, if that's cool, like, are we, is there a timer or what nah, are we dude. doing with that? No, we, well, the, the recording kicks off at two hours. So, uh, in most, oh, we won't go. Yeah. <laughs> go on. We, we won't go that far. Okay. So, um, so that progressed rapidly. So it went from, you know, I was a hustler to where I became, I hustled and I was making a killing and then it became, okay, now I'm no longer making such of a killing, but I'm getting high for free all the time. And then that progressed into, well, now I no longer have the means, the supplies, the finances to even support my own habit. Mm-hmm. That's how that progressed, right? I, you know, uh, just so very quickly, four years. By the time I was nine, before I was even a legal adult, I was I had ran through the entire timeline of what, you know, the progression of addiction all the way up until I, I I was knocking on death's door, bro. Like I had just started hanging out with people who were uh, shooting the dope with needles. Right. Like that's who I just started kicking it with. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, I didn't do thing how your how your as your disease progresses, your friend circle progresses and in, in, in the your your disease of addiction goes up and the quality of friends go down because now you need new people that are worse off than you in a lot of ways. I, I always had some yeah. a few people around me that were worse off so I could point to them and say, well, when I get that bad, then I'll change. But what happened is as my disease progressed, those guys went away and I had to get some new worse friends so I could point and say, I don't have a problem. Yeah. They do. All right. <laughs> yeah. That's a very good point. Um, yeah. So that's a, within four years, that's where it got. So, um, so the, this is what started when I was 19 is what started the process, man. I was, um, I was running wild. I, my God back then was just plain and simple. It was hip hop music, rap, like the culture, bro. I lived it. If they said it in a song, I did it. If they said I need to keep, you know, a pistol in the glove box, there was a pistol in the glove box. If there was a roach needed to be in the ashtray, there was a roach in the ashtray. We didn't ride dirty, right? So my point is I worship hip-hop culture and gangster rap, right? And because I connected with it, like it it, it was just me. And so when I was 19, I was was going to town. I had just bought – so here, I was strung out on meth, first of all, on everything, actually. Don't just call it meth. I was strung out on everything. And there was towards the end, there became this uh, recipe that changed daily. And it, it involved marijuana, uh, whiskey, methamphetamine, Xanaxes and meth. Right. Mm-hmm. In different in different amounts yeah. daily. That was how I operated mm-hmm. um, each day that did change. So at this point, I had been up for five to seven days. I'm really not sure, honestly, um, but it was at least a week. 
And I decided we're going to town to get some more weed to smoke, right? Your smoke sack's different than what you sell. Mm. So I'm going to get some more weed to smoke. It's one o'clock in the morning. I had just bought um, this fully automatic paintball gun, right? Mm. And like, I mean, I just got it like that night and I haven't used a fully automatic paintball gun and I was, I thought it was super cool. Right. So, um, I decided me and my buddy, we're going to go to town and we're going to go get this and I'm going to take the paintball gun with me because I got to try it out. (laughs) Yeah. So my, my dude's like, bro, don't, what do you talk? Don't take, don't bring that gun. I'm like, dude, shut up in the car. (laughs) So we, so I took it and I'm shooting stop signs and, and, uh, traffic lights and seeing if I can hit them because that's hard to hit a traffic light, but I was doing it. Um, and uh, I may have shot at a couple cars, right? But so we got to get the weed and we were there for like an hour because we smoked and then we left and we were driving down the road and a cop falls in behind us and then it wasn't a block and it was another cop and then another cop and another four cops got behind me with no lights on. And see, this whole time I've been selling dope since I was 12. You know what I'm saying? I, I was always paranoid. And now four cops are behind me with no lights on and I know what time it is, right? It's going down. They've been plotting on me since I was 15 and I know they're here for me now. They flip their lights on. I pull over, they get out, guns drawn, hands in the air. I am freaking out, Preston. Like I've never been in trouble. Um, And so this is what's going on. They're surrounding me. They're like hands in the air yelling at me. They're cops. They have guns pointed. I'm about to die in my brain, right? Like they're about to shoot me. Um, and so they, you know, we get out of the, get out of the car, they throw me around, start searching me and start pulling stuff out of my pockets. Um, and I realized, bro, like I, I, every single thing, illegal money, baggies, everything is in my cargo pants. Like hmm. I broke the rule, the hip hop religion of riding dirty. You don't do that. And yeah. I, I did because I was strung out. Um, and he says the cop that's searching me, he says, where's the gun? And I'm like, I, like, I'm being honest. I'm a like, dude. I do not have a gun. Like there was not a weapon in there. And he's like, you know, make this easier on yourself. Blah, blah, blah. Where's the gun? It was the paintball gun. Someone had called and said that I was firing an automatic weapon out of the window of said vehicle. So that's why they were so aggressive when they pulled me over because there was a report that I was firing an automatic weapon out of that vehicle. So, and one would say as they should be. Uh, wait, what part? I, I'm, what, I was, as they should be, what? Say, aggressive with me? be aggressive when someone's firing a gun. Nobody, yeah. nobody realizes it's a, is, is a paintball gun. And the other thing that's obviously in the back of my mind with where we're at right now, uh, you know, I wonder how it would be if, if, uh, if the, oh, if I was, if was I was a black different. man, I would be dead. Is that what you're saying? Because it, is that what you're saying? Well, I, you know, the, the, I just think so much about, um, a lot of my friends that are of Caucasian descent always go, well, white people get roughed up too. And I go, you know, I broke the law. Yeah. Because they're being, re- yeah. I, I just go, I had a bunch of run-ins with the law and I broke the law a lot. And a lot of times I was in the wrong and I never got roughed up. And I also, you know, I do take it into consideration. We see what we look for, but I just, you know, a lot of times on Facebook, I see these white dudes that are, Doing the craziest shit, taking taking police's baton, you know, taking their uh, taking their car, running over things, and they never get shot. But yet, you got an African American or Mexican dude that like has a like a, a, a sub sandwich, or they have they say yes, I've got something, and they end up getting shot. So as you're telling this story, I go, 
I think we get treated differently. That's all I'm saying. Oh yeah, for sure. Same. We, me and you're on the same team and page with that as well. Like I realize, yeah, yeah. You know, I could, uh, like I said, I would probably, I probably wouldn't have lived past that if I was a man of color. Yeah. So, but anyway, so um, they're, so they're yeah. roughing you up. They're talking about where's the gun. You say, I don't have one. And it was the paintball gun. Yeah. And so cool story. I, um, Hmm. Yeah, I think we should talk about this real quick. So a year or so before this, um, I came back in contact with my dad. You know how I came back in contact with my dad, Preston? I do not know. Um, I was uh, he was buying dope from a fellow cook friend of mine. So (laughs) so I am so excited at this opportunity to get high with my dad, because really all I want is to connect with my dad, Preston. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I always wanted to be like dad, even though I was trained to hate him. Um, I always still wanted to be just like him. Um, cause uh, you know, I thought there's this, I think there's this spiritual truth about loving your, your parent. Like it's, I don't think you can, I don't think you can change that, bro. And I, I you know, that's my own belief, but, um, I feel like anything outside of that is just really unresolved hurt. But anyway, so, um, the in reconnecting with dad, all that unresolved hurt that I just spoke to was there. And, um, I lost it on him and broke his shit and everything and went off on him because he's never paid his child support, but he was buying dope. Right. I, I used that opportunity to go off on dad and let him know how I felt. Um, so that was the only really time I really messed with dad. Um, and then I, once I got arrested, uh, cool thing dad was just graduating drug court right that's where i come from my, my father had just graduated drug court so that was cool for me though because he was in really good with the judge who instead of sending me straight to prison for five years gave me a chance to complete drug court so um i got slapped on the wrist i got five years probation um if i didn't complete drug court then i would go do the five years in prison so um, that's what started my, that's the intro to Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. I went in there, I, I played the part, I got a sponsor, um, I worked the steps, and also sold more dope than I ever had in my entire life. <laughs> now, I did, so I, but, so I did have this, uh, this weird moral thing about, I did not involve NA people in that, right? Sure. It was outside of that. So I did, I did draw a line there, but um not that that makes shit okay or better but i always like we all kind kind of move our morals around with like well sure i was selling dope but i didn't sell it to any people in recovery or right i was messing running around in my relationship but i didn't do that i didn't break up any other relationships you know it's like we all got our our level we we move it around yeah so that was sacred to me and i respected it were you you using at this time or the reason you were selling so much is because you weren't using Exactly. Like I was killing it, bro. And so I was in it for about six months. I'm, you know, I'm about to go past phase one into phase two. And I run into this dude I went to high school with and he's a third phaser, bro. A third phaser in drug, in drug court. court. You hear me? T- tell the, tell yeah. the listeners quickly what drug court is. Oh, that's a good point. So drug court is like a diversion program where um, you see a judge once a week. And as you progress, you know, it turns into once every two weeks and once a month. Right. But at first you, you see a judge once a week, you go to group therapy once a week. Um, you are required to maintain gainful employment of at least like 30 hours. You uh, call every day to see if you have a drug test, a random urine screen. Um, very structured accountability process for a person who is, you know, uh, 
chemically dependent. Yeah. Um, and it's an opportunity because it's a drug charge, right? It's a drug charge. So there, it's the, it was created to help people who um, had drug problems, you know, instead of just throwing them in prison. Uh, it, was, it was designed to help. You know what I mean? Yeah. I believe that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's what I did. I got signed up in drug court. So you were in phase um, two, your going, boy was phase three. I was in phase one. I ran in my third phase, buddy. And I'm like, what are you doing tonight? It was Friday. Um, I'm like, what are you doing tonight? He's like, I'm going to get drunk. I'm like, you can't get drunk. You're in drug court. You know what I'm saying? He's like, bro, they don't test for alcohol. <laughs> so Preston, up until this point, I never mess with alcohol. Yeah. So up until this point, I'm six months into actually being sober. I am working steps. I do have a sponsor. I am playing the part. I go to a meeting every day. Like I got this new social group, but there's this double life aspect, sure. right? That is becoming so like, it's my life, right? There's, there's this one dude who is a dope boy. There's this other dude who is a, a teacher's pet, right? Yeah. So, um, the crazy part of that was, oh, so no, I'll get to that. So I got drunk that night, long story short. Mm-hmm. And here's what happened to me, Preston. Here's what I was saying about a young person listening to this. Here's what happened. Cause I learned up to this point, I learned about addiction. I learned what alcoholism was. I learned about, you know, um, withdrawals and, and how, you know, once you start it, you can't stop. Mm-hmm. Right. I've been learning about all this stuff. And what happened president is I got drunk that night and I woke up the next day and I wasn't shaking. I didn't have to have another drink. Fine. And it, it, it came, I, it, I conceded to my innermost self that, okay, now I know that I really don't have this thing that all these people have. And I would also because probably venture now I have proof. I would also venture to bet that your that your uh, tolerance was way down. So you didn't go ham. You didn't go too crazy. You're like, dude, I did just a little bit. No big deal. Yeah. I woke up. I'm fine. Yeah. So I'm not an alcoholic. Yeah. Basically, I tried some controlled drinking and it was successful. And I can I was convinced then that okay. Yeah, now I just now I know I really don't have to buy into this shit. I just got to do what I got to do to get drug court over. Right. Right. So it's funny how that, quick that, it's funny how quick that shifts. One conversation with, oh, you can't do that. And you were obviously you were obviously not drinking and doing drugs, not because you thought for sure you're a drug addict, alcoholic, but because they you couldn't and you didn't want to go to jail and you wanted to check the box. But with even the minimal amount of convincing, you're like, oh, shit, maybe maybe they're right. Do, do the drink. Because when I was quite young, uh, I was 20, uh, close to when, when you were in there. But I was willing to maybe say I might be a drug addict. Like drugs might be an issue. And oh, by the way, they are illegal. So maybe you got something there. But I'm not an alcoholic, you know. And I had that just it took me a while to, 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 to get to that point. Um, but anyway, so, so you, so you did this, you woke up, you don't have the shakes, you, you, your, your controlled drinking worked, and now it worked. And now what? Uh, now it's on (laughs) right (laughs) now it's on. Um, so that looks like it turned very, very much a pattern. Um, I watched it progress, uh, because that drinking on Fridays, I'd also, in the meantime, I had learned, how that random drug screen worked. It wasn't actually so random. Um, I mean, it was random, but also there were some patterns, right? You never dropped on Sunday. Yeah. Um, if you, you, you know, if you dropped the last two Saturdays, there's no way they're going to do it the third one in a row. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, these thoughts did not ever pop into my head until on Friday, I, I take a shot of whiskey, right? So my inhibitions come down. 
And I start thinking, okay, what I really want to get high on will be out of my system in 72 hours. And there's no way if you have to piss on Monday, I got until 6 p.m. So if I go in right now and do what I want to do and I drink a lot of water throughout the weekend, I can do this. Right. And that became my newest obsession. That is how I lived my life for the next three years, bro. And except for it being on Fridays, it was every day. And um, so and here's the thing. In order to pee in the cup, you go into the courthouse, which is actually connected to the county jail. Mm-hmm. So um, so every time I would go in there um, and I would drop, I would pee in the cup and put it in the window and I would walk away not knowing if today's the day they're going to find out, <laughs> right? Dude, this is so similar to my shit, man. I, te- I tell, I've, I've talked a little bit about it, but I feel like so many people need, a lot of people need to have that experience with like progression, <laughs> unmanageability, <laughs> power, the, just the ins- insidiousness and the, the insanity that comes with trying to figure out okay 72 hours if i do this i got 72 hours and i'm not going to do it i'm probably you know what i'm not going to do it i'm just going to do it on the weekend and i'm not going to do it and after you piss you're back to all right well maybe i'll do a little bit and then it's the same just you don't even know if you're going to get away with it and even at least in my experience i kept going you know what i'm not going to do this again when i'm in there good pissing and seeing my probation i was i'm not going to do it i'm going to cut back and at the minute I walk out of there, I'm going, I made it. Now I can do a little, just a little bit. I'm just going to do a little bit. And I feel like I needed that so I could understand I'm powerless over all substances. Yeah. I have no you nailed it. manageability. You nailed it. And that, and that's why when, so here's a, here's a piece from the doctor's opinion, big book, Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous, men and women drink because they like the effects produced by alcohol while they admit it is injurious. They cannot, after a time, differentiate the truth from the false. Mm. And after they succumb to the desire again, as so many do, they emerge remorseful. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, so as they succumb to the desire again, as so many do, they emerge remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. Not this cycle is repeated again. over. This cycle is repeated over and over again. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. So when I heard that. You know, two years later, Preston, and I looked at what you just described in my life. I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, I've got to have a psychic change or I'm going to die. <laughs> right? right. Like, so, um, yeah, but, but you're exactly right. Like, that's what, like, that's exactly how it went down. What you described, I'd get out of there. And, but here's the thing I would have therapy the next day and I would have to go in there not knowing if the, it, did they know? Did they tell? You know what I mean? I, yeah. I sit down in the group. Well, the therapist, the counselor is of drug court, so he would know, right? So I go sit in the group. Yeah. And uh, I'm nervous. Like, is today the day we're connected to the jail? They cuff me. Am I gone? Right. Yeah, yeah. And he would never say nothing. But he, when groups sat down to start, he would look around the room and make eye contact with everybody and hold this, you know, a few seconds of silence. And really, what I knew, my guilty <laughs> conscience said, "Oh my God, he's like he knows he's he's he, messing with he's me." He's probably right looking for like the the lookaways, the squirming, the whatever. Yeah. Or maybe he didn't know. Maybe he didn't know. We just thought he knew. Yeah, I don't know. But um, so and then that was the biggest freedom. Once that group was over and nothing was said, you're like, you're right. Like now it was time. Um, But that's dude. the next 
drug court is a 12 to 18 month program. It literally took me until I was 23 to get revoked, right? To get terminated from drug court. From um, because, yeah, because that's how I lived, bro. I kept on, they kept giving me another chance, bro. I would be all up in third phase and they would finally drop a dirty on me and they would start me over. Mm. So, so, um, uh, so what that turned into, man, was the, the end of that looked like I had that part-time job. I no longer had, I was no longer the man, right? My part-time job went for the money I got from that went to purchase cleanser and just enough dope to keep me from like being miserable. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I was at and that's where I'd been living for like three months and still doing that walk in, dropping the pee off and not knowing it. It just got to like, after three years of that pressing, it wore me down yeah. and, um, I, you know, it was no longer cool. I was desperate if I wasn't living at my mom's house and had turned it into a trapped house, I would have been homeless. Right. But I had mommy. So, um, and like the worst thing ever happened, bro. So that was, it was a weekend. It was November 17th, 2005 is, was the day. But, um, I got, you know, there was this, my friend, my friend had left his, he was going through a divorce and he was spending a lot of time at my house and, um, he drank whiskey and smoked weed, but that was it. And then on a Friday, I got him high on a lot of hard stuff. And the next day, he shot himself, bro, and killed himself. What? And um, yeah, man, it was it's, man. It's, his name's Dan, and like he was like my best friend. He was such a good dude, man. And um, and it fucked. It was it was over. It was over. Like I did that. I killed that man. Um, in my brain. You know what I mean? You know, I had to do a lot of therapy and a lot of processing and a lot of work and and a lot of you know, he made that decision, but there's also, you know, we look at, we're talking about the process of the steps and it's a, what part did you play? Well, Preston, I, I didn't like looking at that question. Right. So, um, because right now I, I know for a fact, my choices have an impact, bro. Um, no matter what I choose, um, not choosing even as a choice and every choice has an impact on me and the world around me. And, um, I played a role, a very huge role in what, in Dan not being here today. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and it was fucking heavy, man. And so from there, like when I went to report to drug court, they, they asked me, they said, have you been faking screens? And I've very, like, I, I was done, bro. I'm like, yes, I have actually, please. Like, let's, let's get this over with. Um, and so that was the end that was that was what the end looked like um it's like the well that would be in in the rooms we talk about total surrender and the other thing i was thinking about when you're talking about your boy dan is how the i hate sometimes i don't like necessarily delineating between what drug and drug addicts and alcoholics do versus normal people because it also happens with normal people but how so many of us will I hear so many drug dealers talk about I would just give people drugs so they would hang out with me I didn't even like them or when I was using I would go smoke weed with people I didn't like just so I didn't have to be by myself or if you're around someone that just drinks it would be like cool to try to get them to smoke weed or do some other stuff and there's so many intricacies in that because i just didn't if they just drank and i did hard drugs 
so that that inferiority complex would set in. So if I could get them to do some hard drugs or to smoke weed, then now we were equal and I'm not so bad. Or just this just this play on what we do, it's probably going back to that feeling low self-worth or not included or whatever. And that play to make myself feel better by getting other people to do things that they may not normally do. And then you're talking about my behaviors and what I do play a part in something as, as extreme as this guy committing suicide, you know, and I'm not necessarily saying that's exactly what happened, but I've seen that play out over. It's it's just like, how many people do we influence to do something that may typically be outside of their character just so we can feel better about ourselves and we make it look like we're trying to help them. But in reality, we're just trying to not feel like such a loser or a piece of crap. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I don't, so I don't really, I, it does make sense um, for me, like in that situation, like what's fucked up is there was no, you know, it wasn't it, what that wasn't the motive. Um, I've, I've done a lot of work on this. Like what, what the motive was for that. Like I wanted I, as fucked up as it is, I was trying to help Dan. Right. Or I want to help. So Dan just sat in his chair, bro. And he didn't even look up unless he was hitting that bottle. Right. And he was depressed bad, bro. And he wouldn't talk. He would just fucking sit there, man. And I had I wanted to help him. Like, that's how fucked up my thinking was. I was I was helping, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, well, I knew meth was the magic that. cure. Huh? Yeah. You believe that substances? Yeah. Help. Yeah, and that's my point in the you know, had I so I was in drug court, bro. Like I was supposed to be going to meetings. Like I was supposed to be sober, right? So those choices did they have an fuck yeah, absolutely they had an impact on all that. You know what I'm saying? And like um it's just really tough, man, and um so, so you, that that's so you that went in and you, sur- you surrendered you said yeah i've been faking drug screens yeah 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 and they go all right you're revoked you're going to prison yep pretty much that's exactly how it went um but and here's the here's the the terrible thing right? and the just a great example of how bad it was like when when that door closed i'd been to jail 30 times up to that point because all my dirty screens for weekends or 30 days i did 90 days once um but you know, this time there was no release date and, um, I walked in and the door closed and there was a top bunk open. And I remember the door takes forever to close. By the time I got crawled up in that top bunk, that door slammed. I got chills. Like just thinking about when that door slammed, bro. Um, just this peace came over me. And like the fact that I would lay down on a metal bed inside a you know a a concrete room with a steel door that i cannot open would bring me peace and not knowing when i'm leaving Mm. like that's where my life was that that situation that reality brought me peace i think of the think about that i think i think the time i was uh the last time i got arrested i got arrested four times in three years and i remember sitting in the back of that police car I, i leaned my head back on a fucking plastic seat thinking of my having a sense of relief that finally someone's going to help me with my using because I was a little bit, I wasn't to the point where I was about to go to jail, but I was going to get on probation for the first time because I skirted probation the three times before. And it's that I'm sitting in the back of the police car, just like you're sitting on that top bunk going, 
relief. I don't have to do it no more. I'm yeah. safe. You yeah. Know, whatever. Yeah. And, um, so that's what it was, man. I didn't, I, so I ended up not having to do the full five years because my granny dad's mom, mm-hmm. um, she's a trooper, bro. Like she was in that, the drug court judge, she was in his chambers like every day when he was done with drug court yeah. or not every day, once a week, it was like on Tuesdays or Wednesdays or something, but she would go there. And at the end of it, she would, uh, you know, he'd have to address everybody in the courtroom and she would ask him if, if he's found a place for me yet. <laughs> That's what my granny did for me, bro. Right. Um, she's passed away since then, but granny, granny's the reason I've, that I got to go to volunteers of America. Granny's the reason I got out of prison. Um, because so there's in Kentucky, there's, it's called shock probation. You get three chances. Um, you can apply at 30 days and then you can apply 60 days after that. And then 90 days after that on the third try, um, I was granted shock probation. And and um, what's that for, for, for those that don't know what it is? Shock probation is when you, your sentence is you, you get let out of prison. Um, and you're pretty much you have to finish the rest of your time out on the streets on probation. Yeah. Um, but mine and there's came not with, a whole lot of wiggle wiggle room, I have to imagine. Oh, no, that's what I was about to say. Mine came with a two page court order that um, had very specific instructions on what I should do and even specific instructions on what I should not do. Um, you know, one of those was not to come back to Bowling Green for one year. Um I was not allowed, you know, I had a court order to not enter that county. Um, and I had to complete the long-term residential treatment at Volunteers of America. And um, that was pretty much the two big ones. And I, so that, so that's what, that's what I did, man. Um, and granny came to get me out of prison, May 31st, 2006. And um, so, you know, from November to, to May, that's how long I was gone. Um, but on, you know, May, when I got out, I went straight to treatment and, uh, I'm very fortunate, man, that that since we're talking about your, what's the name of this podcast again, Preston specifically, the high cost of anonymity. Yeah. So up until that point, um, not that it's anybody's fault, right. I'm just saying up until that point, every person in a role of therapist or authority figure, when it came to treating that problem that. I didn't believe I had was a therapist, right? When I got to volunteers of America, they were therapists too. But the very first thing he made clear was his 13 years sober from shooting dope in his veins. Mm. And from that point on, whatever that dude had to say, because he was properly armed with the facts about how this thing affected him. Mm. So he, he won my entire confidence in just a few minutes by speaking his truth. Yeah. Not by dancing around his his master's degree and hiding his own personal struggles, but by embracing those. Right, he had me in such listening in such a way that it only the dying do. Right, like I've never paid such attention to anybody that anything anybody ever said as I was this man because he was telling me things like, you know, he, the first thing he said, Preston was. This process has a way of putting you right back where you would have been had you never even came off track. I'm like, dude, I you don't even know who I am. You know what I'm saying? Mm. He repeated himself and it became my motto. And that's what, that's my thing now, bro. This process has a way of putting you right back where you, where you would have been had you never came off track, but he just went in, man. He went in and he, he talked about the spiritual malady and, and he hung everything he did on the, on the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's why I am 
that's why I'm in AA. That's why I, you know, I, I do AA because I, I did NA the whole time up until before I went to prison. Uh, not that any, either one of those is better. When I go to an NA meeting, my name is Ricky and I'm an addict. When I go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, my name is Ricky and I'm an alcoholic because I understand it's not, the bottles were only a symbol. They point to the problem. The problem is the spiritual malady, the bankruptcy, right? Yeah. And, and the problem isn't the substance. It's how I use the substance. You already spoke to that, right? And it's not even the substance. It's how I use things, right? Yeah. Um, but um, it, tell me, your what, what was your sobriety date again? April 20th, 2006. So what, so what, April 20th, 2006, you got out May 31st of 2006. Were you, using, a good catch. In, were you using in prison or you were only in prison for that long? No, I was using it. So here's a, I smoked weed on April 19th for the first time since I got locked up. And Did it was the worst. Yeah. November 29th, 2005. So okay, I guess. it was, you know, 12 days after I buried my friend Dan and then I went to drug court. I had a report to drug court and I told him everything, you know what I mean? I was done. Um, but on April 19th, they got some weed in and I'm like, hell yeah. Dude, it was the smallest joint I've ever smoked in my life. I bet I hit it four times and I tripped, dude, I tripped balls. They were coming to get me. Uh, the people I smoked it with were trying to rob me. Um, I was tripping, dude, I was tripping so hard. I don't know if that was even weed. I was just thinking, I was like, you know, something's going in the jail. They probably put a little extra in there, but also coupled with number one you're doing something you're definitely not supposed to do yeah. in a place where you're locked up and with and no then, tolerance right right yeah. right yeah so um so that's why my sobriety date's april 20th because that the 419 is the last time i smoked um i wonder yeah. uh too uh and i'm curious of your headspace is even with that traumatic experience that you had with Dan and you go in and I called it a surrender moment when you went in and told him everything you did, even with all that shame and guilt and knowing that you contributed to that terrible thing happening to Dan only a couple of months later, you're doing it again. Are you talking about smoking the weed? Yeah. Oh so I yeah. wonder, cause I think of how many times, for me that the consequences never even crossed my mind. It was as if like on autopilot, they go, yo, you want to smoke? Boom. I smoked. Yo, put something in my hand. I didn't even ask where it come from. I just did it. And then after the fact I go, why in the hell did I just do that? Or the amount of people that said, Oh man, I got arrested or I was in the hospital. I'm never, oh, I got it divorced. I'm never doing it again. I mean, I've learned my lesson only to know that the further they get away from that traumatic experience, they start to convince themselves, you know what? A little weed won't hurt or, you know, alcohol is not my drug of choice. I'll just do a little. What was the thought process yeah. in you going from this desperate moment of surrender in November to, you know, six months later going, oh, hell yeah, weed, let's smoke. Uh, that's the, 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 the mental process that precedes a relapse into drinking. Right. So that was the, uh, here's what it was. All right. I'm going to, when I get out of here, I'm not doing drugs anymore. So this is probably my last opportunity to get high. I'm going to take this. <laughs> right. That's, that was my thought process. Right. And it says, 
it says in the big book, it says we can, they, uh, they cannot bring with sufficient force the pain or suffering from even a week ago, right? Into consciousness enough to stop that. And it says, uh, so it says something about there's a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. You know, it's like there's this lapse in my brain that just don't connect that. It's like, oh, oh, yeah, like you said. It doesn't matter what it is or what's in it. Let's well, it's kind of like this. This when we're talking about uh, the line where you talk about sufficient force, which means uh, in the in the basic text of NA, they talk about you could be prayed over, you could be uh, arrested, you could be. Uh, uh, I can't even go through all the all the all, all the things that they list, but this you could have so much willpower, you could say this is it i've i've had enough consequence i'm never doing the get it again but it's never with enough force that's going to keep you from doing it again like will i always explain willpower is like a you know it's like a gas tank you know you might have a lot of willpower but eventually that willpower is going to run out and usually you reach for that thing that you've been abstaining from and so you go well if it's substances and you're allergic to substances there you go again um yep so yeah, that's that's interesting. So so you you used you're in jail uh, prison for six months. You used you got out. You went to Volunteers of America, which I've never heard of that before. But I'm assuming it's uh, some variation of drug and alcohol treatment, homeless shelter slash you know volunteering in service for America. I don't know is, is that right or not. <laughs> kind of. So the, so the last part. So the the umbrella company is Volunteers of America, and it is um. Uh, they have a lot of services, disability, veterans, uh, homeless, addiction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I was in the long-term residential men's treatment yeah. part of that. Gotcha. Um, and so, uh, so that's when you, that's when you got, uh, sober. And then I'm assuming you kind of, uh, dove into Alcoholics Anonymous and kind of went through all your, uh, went through the steps and and kind of got yourself back on track what did you do uh what did you do for work and and how did you kind of transition out of that uh program so i remember it was uh, that was really the hardest part man because I w- i'm from the country right you can probably tell when i talk um but so when i moved to louisville you know louisville is still the country but it's the big city to me yeah and um so now i found myself standing on the corner waiting on target buses uh, walking the streets of the city, looking for a job. Yeah. And my first time really as a convicted felon. Yeah. Right. So, so there's this, um, you know, just the belief, the, the real, the realization that I've really done it now. Right. I'm going home to a, to a homeless shelter. I'm, uh, relying on public transportation, right? I've completely destroyed my life at this point in my brain. Um, and so part of the requirements after I was there, it's a six month inpatient program. So by two months, you've got to go find a job. And that's what I was doing on the talk bus. And, um, sorry, I'm moving about. It's all good. Um, so, so, yeah, I'm on the TARC bus. I'm walking the streets. I'm trying to find a job, putting in applications, checking the box that says, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Um, and just really, you know, really, I remember walking those streets. It was hot. It was summer. I remember walking and I remember just coming to the the, the realization that, dude, it's I've really 
mess things up. I'm a convicted felon. Um, it's not really ever going to get much better than this, right? Just really walking through that and struggling through that and um, processing through that. Because the job that I did land was for six fifty an hour, Preston. Six dollars and fifty cents an hour, bro. <laughs> and um, and I, but I was around such I was in such a good environment that what that turned into, instead of me being upset about that, I was taught to remember what it was like to weed eat for ten hours a day while in prison for sixty eight cents a day. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um um I just, that, that was so big for me, man, because to look at my life today, it's hard to imagine that like, if you were looking at me from the outside, that I was in a homeless shelter doing what I just described. Right. Um, just because like, because this process has put me right back on track as if I never came off, you know what I'm saying? Like mm. it, it worked, it did it. Um, and so, so, you know, I was in treatment. Um, I got enrolled in college never seen that coming. Um, I got a job at a, a local automotive repair place, changing tires. Um, so my six fifty, my six fifty an hour job at that car lot, um, landed me across the street at the place where we got tires put on at. I got a job for eight fifty an hour within like three months. I got promoted yeah. and got a new job. Um, and by the end of that summer, here's the, here's the important part, Preston, while I was gone, um, there was a girl, there was a girl who, man, she didn't kill herself, but the impact of my choices in her life, um, she was perfect and a non-drug user when I met her at like 16 or 17. Yeah. And um, after, you know, while I was in treatment, I, like two years after I got out of treatment, um, she was pregnant in prison. So, um, but while I was in treatment, I was still trying to make that work. I had to, I had to stay away from Bowling Green for one year. And as soon as that year was up, my plan was to go back and make everything better with her. Mm-hmm. And it came time where, you know, I'd, I was really working on this relationship with God and, and under, you know, God's will and self will and all that. Um, and it came time it was done. I could go back and she was still getting high. And it, you know, it was really hard for me to choose because I was going back up until the time it was time to leave. I had decided I was going back. Um, yeah. And the last, the last minute I decided, you know what, I'm staying and me staying is what saved my life. Um, because back down there, I was going to go try to fix her. I was going to go try to make that work and, and repair all the damage I caused. And, um, and you know, while I was gone, she had cheated on me with several of my, I'm doing air quotes right now, best friends. Um, friends so yeah. it, it really hurt a lot, but by the time it was done, um, I decided to stay. I was in college. I had the best job I'd ever had in my life. And from then, man, from then on once I, that, so it's another level of surrender Preston. And here's another level of surrender that I skipped over. Um, when I was in treatment, it's very hardcore, right? Um, it's hardcore in a, in a way that there's fierce accountability every day at four 30. Um, and they kind of handled me as if you don't like it, pack your shit and leave. That was their approach. Um, yeah. And as a result, I got put on dining room focus, which is where my job is to um, copy the big book from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. in a wooden chair at a wooden table. So hold on. Um, 
What was that? So tell me what that was. It's called dining room focus. Um, and it it was a part of the treatment process. I told them about my problems with God. I told them that they were all full of shit because God was full of shit. And, um, they didn't like what I had to say. They, they, their words were, I was, uh, I was toxic and they they weren't (laughs) wrong. Um, and so as a result, they put me on dining room focus, which is where I was to maintain the central silence. I wasn't allowed to talk. I had to copy the book. I could get up at five till the hour to use a bathroom, and that was it. Um, but, uh, handwriting. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 So you're you're handwriting the big book from for twelve hours. Yes. Thirty minute lunch and right. five minutes. That's a good way to. That's a good way to learn the text. That's why I know it so well. <laughs> <laughs> which which serves me too, man. Um, yeah. But um. So that's the other part of surrender. Because there's always Here, there's always a new surrender. There's always a new level to surrender at, right? And uh, you know, you described one, and then the next one was that because I was there and they did that to me. And on the wall, when you graduate that program, I still have my coffee cup that I got from it. But you got a coffee cup that hangs on the wall and you become a member of the Any Links Club. And what that represents is that you're willing to go to any links to stay sober. When you graduate that program, that is 100 percent true. You have proved that you're willing to go to any links. And so I'm staring at that wall while I'm writing that book. And, you know, it's one of my bathroom breaks. And I go in and I'm uh I hit my knees, bro. It broke me. And, and I, and I came to this place where, you know, I was about three months in and, and my prayer, I prayed and my prayer was, if this is how it's going to be um, for the rest of my time here, if I don't get to talk, if I got to sit in this dining room, uh, if that's what it's going to take for me to get sober, then let's do this. Like that's not, I was not being passive aggressive with God. I was not being a smart ass. I was being 100% willing to go to any lengths to get this thing. Um, yeah, that's, what I, that's what I was thinking. What just a, a total willingness yeah. and surrender. Yeah. So, so that happened. And then there was a new level, uh, once I got out of treatment of surrendering, um, and staying put. So I stayed put in Louisville and it was the best decision ever made. And I, and I have to imagine when you made that decision, you had the added benefit of having a group of men around you yes like a sponsor and guys you saw at meetings and people that you ran the stuff by and people that say well ricky this is what i know about you are you operating out of fear is this your ego talking here's some pros and cons so you were actually using them bro you nailed it to help you make better life decisions for yourself you nailed it bro and that's because i believe god works through people and um and everybody I would talk to about it had the same response. And I was the only one who thought it would still be a good idea. You know, going to Bowling Green was a good idea. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I, I had this experience with 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 my. When I finally. When I finally kind of got the concept of. If I take 10 of these people that that I know love me or that care about me. And we use the text as kind of a foundational principle because at that point I kind of go, you know, this stuff that I'm reading in this book it makes a lot of sense. And I was like, I bet that these 10 people could make better decisions for my life than I could make for my life. Yeah. So and we have a foundation which we can agree on. So why don't I let them help me make better decisions for my life? And 99% of the time, that was true. And I didn't have to do it alone. 
and I didn't have to wonder, is this the right, is this the right choice or is this not? Am I operating out of fear? Or I'm operating out of faith. I didn't have to figure that out on my own. I did that. But in addition to that, I also used my support group of men that, that didn't have a dog in the fight on whether I went or stayed, whether I went left or went right. They just wanted to help me make the best decision for me. And that's one of the, and I still use that today. Yeah, for sure. So that that's a uh, so that's that's interesting. So you you stayed. You were were working at the at the tire shop. Yep, best job uh, you ever had. Then what happened? Um, that, it's interesting because I, I I was gonna skip over this part of the story, but today it, it rings way more true for me because me and you have talked like we've. I love our little thing we got right. Like we met on Instagram. You're like I got a podcast, and then we've been on the phone for a couple of hours, right? Yeah. Hello, hello. Hey, it's all good. So you were you uh we we got cut off, but you said we got uh got this thing. <laughs> Sounds like a long distance relationship, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, but it's been really cool because we talked about me and you had talked about how you know I kept the music separate from my professional life, and that's what that's the next part of uh, to answer your question is because I was getting promoted at that tire job. Yeah. Um, and it was time for like I was going to get promoted to like an, an assistant manager from, you know, changing tires to assistant manager. You're talking about going from 850 an hour to like 35, 36 K a year. This is back in 2008. I'm two years sober. Right. I went from 650 an hour to the opportunity to make 36 grand. So. um, So I'm super excited. I go through all the interviews, everybody who works around me and knows me, all the superiors um, are recommending me for the for the promotion. And I go in with the owner of the company. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got the job pretty much. And he, he's, he gets to the point of the interview where he's like, well, tell me a little bit, a little bit more about yourself. And I went on to tell him about, um, like my background, you know what I mean? Like where I came from, uh, about the volunteers of America, about prison. And the owner of this company had no idea about any of that. And, um, it get, I was denied the, I was denied the promotion. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, um, uh, be, and later on what I found out, here's what I found out. So I was, I was, uh, I was upset. So I put in my two weeks notice and I went to, I went to draw blueprints for, um, a friend of mine had a job. It's a structural steel detailing. I've never done it, but it's an ind- independent business. So, um, I go in and I, I start, drawing blueprints in AutoCAD um, because I, you know, I got my feelings hurt and also, man, it hurt my soul, man. Like what? No, I'm going to, so I'm in this place at two years sober where I was taught to stand on my, my past and, and to, um, you know, because the big book taught me, man, it says cling to the thought that in God's hands, your, your painful past is the most valuable possession you have with it. You can avert death and misery for others. It's the key to life and happiness, right? So I believed that. And, you know, here I am sharing that on a professional level, and it, it hurt me. Right. And so I'm in this place of, okay, you know, I can't share that with the world, um, or do I, right? So I'm in this moral moral crossroad. Um, so I continue on with the blueprint job. Not my cup of tea, bro. I'm high energy. I can't sit there. I did. 
um, up until work ran out. Like I didn't get fired. Um, I did it and I was good at it. Um, but it got winter time and, and work slowed down and I, I went back into the tire world, but at a different company. Well, um, said company, the other tire company, yeah, they do recruiting hardcore on, you know, proper salesmen. Yeah. And when I went to this new company, I got, you know, the management role. Yeah. Um, because I knew, I knew somebody just so happened to be through the program. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm in this management role and they do see that other company that, that didn't give me the promotion. They have people who do like secret shopper stuff. Yeah. And I became a highly recruited target hire. Yeah. Right. So, so they're after me. Um, they're, they're calling me and leaving me messages. I'm ignoring them. They're just like, they won't stop. So I call them and they make me this crazy offer. Like now we're not talking about 36. We're talking like 50 grand. I'm like, Whoa, you know what I'm saying? They remember what I told you about walking the streets at 6:15 now and being a convicted felon. So I go in for the interviews. I go through three interviews. Um, and the yeah, last one I'm making coffee. So if it's loud, that's what's up. Oh, it's fine. I need some coffee too, but it's, you know what? I'm going to take you with me and I'm going to go get coffee. Yeah. Oh, this one I talk about to people. Like I'm not that worried about auto quality quality. I am, but yo, your boy needs some coffee now. Right. Right. If you know, then you know, right. If you don't know, then now, you know, so, I like I like to use anything and everything that changes the way I feel, and I feel super justified in caffeine. I'll tell you. Oh yeah, that's my go-to, bro. Like me. So, and- so this is this is something that I want to touch on, and whether we touch on now, but one of the but things don't let I- me skip over what I'm about to say. I want to hear what you're saying, but don't let me skip that part. It's so important. All right, go on in. No, go bring it. Oh, so this idea, because one of the arguments that I make is the and the point of the podcast is there is a high cost to not sharing your story okay now normally naturally i gravitate towards 12 step stuff um and i also have to understand too that sometimes people are in roles and jobs where they can't share their their story for example police fire sometimes in the medical community uh, teachers, but, uh, you know, like that sometimes it's easy to paint this picture like, oh yeah, hi, nice to meet you. I'm an addict in recovery, blah, blah, blah. And everybody's just going to embrace you like you're the man and they're, you're going to kind of, the, the door is going to open and, and you're going to get all this help. But w- from what you said, like you didn't get a promotion because of it. And then to also tell people as we teach them to t- share their story in recovery in a productive and responsible way, that in the end, what I have seen more times than not, that they end up in an even better place, even if maybe they suffer some negative consequences by coming out too quick or not doing it correctly or someone else's perception of what that means has actually caused them some negative consequences in, in one way, shape or another. So this is a this is an important topic to cover that it's not always rosy when you say, hey, I struggle with this drug and alcohol addiction or mental health and now I'm this way like not everybody knows and understands it but this is it's also why these conversations are important to have absolutely absolutely and that's that's you're still lined up right with where I was going because you know I was highly recruited they were they were not letting me go I set up an interview they're like okay let's do this they're excited to have me on board because I you know I'm I'm a people person dude I'm good at what I do like if you need some tires we're gonna get you in some good tires you know what I'm saying like um 
so, some so, of the, some of the benefits of being extroverted and a chameleon. Exactly. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. So I go to the next interview and you know what, what happens in that interview, Preston? Um, Same guy. It's, it's what shut me down. No, it's a different person who, who was not a player that was there the first time. Yeah. He's a new player. And it gets to the, to the point of the interview. Um, everything's good. Well, you know, they were very aggressive. And then all of a sudden, I didn't hear from them after all those interviews for like two weeks. This was the second time around again. Yeah. yeah. This is when they were recruiting me. Yeah. And I didn't hear from them. And I get a, a text from one of the guys that's in management there that I know. And he's like, call me. So I call him. He's like, hey, look, here's what's going on, man. He's like, if you pull all of your music off the internet, they'll offer you the job. Wow. And I'm like, are you what? Like, what are you, are you serious? And they're like, he's like, yeah, man, it's it's independent. It's a small bit. It's a family owned business. So I'm like, wow. So hold on, because you haven't gone into when you started getting into music. So I'm assuming when you got out, you started dabbling again in music or what, was that always kind of there? You hadn't really talked about it. That's a very good point. So, yeah, I started making music at my freshman year in high school. Yeah. Um, once I got sober, I did yeah, hip hop music. I didn't do it for the first three years because I was 100% focused on sobriety. Nothing could come in between my relationship with God. Yeah. Well, around 2010, I hit it real hard and I, you know, I released Blind or Behind Blue Eyes, which, you know, that stuff that they're talking about on the internet, it's my story, right? Yeah. Like when you're six years old, you don't know what to do. The closest thing your mother has to a husband is you, and it hurts to sit and watch your mom cry. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's the stuff that I got on the internet, and they're telling me, that in order for me to get this job and, and advance my professional life, I need to remove that from the internet. That's where the decision Preston came for me to hide dollar green from my professional life. I'm not realizing that until I'm talking about this, but that's when it happened, bro. Right. That's when I had to protect it and I had to hide dollar green could not be seen in Ricky green's life. Right. And, um, there's a little, there's a little one. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I'm trying to sneak, sneak through so he doesn't see me <laughs> uh, singing to himself while he's watching uh, Power Rangers. Oh yeah. <laughs> but so, so that's, that happened, man. And you know what I did? And I'm really proud that I did it. Uh, it didn't change the fact that I, I choose, I chose to hit do- high dollar green after that, but I turned them down. I'm like, you know what? I'm not doing that. I'm not going to take my music off the internet. Yeah. Um, because you know, up, you know, there's, uh, there were people messaging me about how that record like helped them get through a hard time. And, yeah. and you know, like it meant something to me spiritually and it's my art. It's my, it's my work. Yeah. And I'm proud of the fact that I chose not to take that off the internet for money. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah. And so in, and to, to cover some of the topic that, that, um, me and you have talked about before and actually what had me, um, and I, I was pretty, pretty out of candid. But, but anyway, I basically said to you, you know, when I first saw your profile, I rolled my eyes that here's another white dude that is trying to be a rapper. He's got some name, Dollar Green, that sounds, you know, whatever, and is not, does not match with, and I'm a hip hop, I love hip hop. That's all I've ever listened to. I was you know, whatever. And I scrolled over your stuff, you know, uh, a number of times, not looking into it. And then I happened across a video where I got to see you and you were talking in your car about you were excited 
about a, 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 a track that you had just put out. Your daughter was singing on it. You taught, told me the meaning. And I instantly connected with you, not not the not the kind of alter ego, not the produced like uh, m- m- uh, stuff that you put on, you know, uh, on the Internet or whatever. It was like a real dude. And then I started looking into you and I, I was like, damn, this guy's got something to say. And wow, it's recovery music. And then I kind of go, why are you using the name Dollar Green? Why don't you use and go along the lines with this? I am who I am. Uh both in private and in public and i'm proud to kind of be who i am and if it's not if you don't like it screw you it's just like this this culminating of like i don't have to be someone different and you and i had a conversation about that and it just you know anyway that was kind of um i guess part of it was that kept me from kind of digging into who you were but that once i learned who you were and it wasn't on purpose. I start. That's what really connected me. And so I asked the question to you. And while you were saying that's why I separated it, I asked the question to you: Is why do you two? Why are you two different people? Or why do you have Ricky Green as this guy and Dollar Green as this guy? Like why aren't they the same? So anyway, that was kind of the a little bit of the back end of the conversation um, that, you, yeah. that you were talking about. But I mean, to, to be fair, uh, I'd be. Uh, you know that that's a t- I'd be probably doing the same thing if someone says yo you're because you, at that point you had two things that were hurting you number one you lost a promotion because you shared that you were a drug addict and a felon and you went to uh, treatment and now you're in recovery that you lost a promotion because of that and then you were almost not going to get a job because they didn't like the art you were doing so now the person goes well do I morph and and ignore who i am to get this job and that might be the right decision at sometimes because 50 grand is a lot of money for a lot of people or do i stand on principle and trust like there's you know each person might make a totally different decision for different reasons um but i think it's part of the greater conversation ricky which you and i talked about is what is the cost to our family ourselves and our community by keeping who we are for real, for real anonymous and quiet and in the shadows. Yeah. It's heavy, bro. That's why I love this podcast. Like, that's why I love what you're doing, man. Um, because it's huge, dude. It's huge. And the truth is you said almost cost. Like I did not, we didn't, we didn't agree. They, I didn't get the job because I didn't remove the stuff off the internet. So I went on about my life as it was before they started recruiting me. Yeah. And, and one day I got a call. Again, a a certain person had left the company and there was no hangups about anything. And they offered me the job with even more money than it was the first time because I was done messing with them, really. Right. Um, So it all worked out, me standing on principle. But it also, you know, it it did hurt. It did. uh, So there was always this struggle. Like, do I remain anonymous in my personal life about who I am? And and do I remain anonymous about that in my music? Right. And, And the music has always been that that's what it is is my is my owning right the beauty that shares the pain is the beauty that saves the world like that's what i'm doing is i'm sharing my pain um and so yeah so that's always that's always been in the back of my mind and you know now here recently bro like the god bless like i'm now i I, i'm a pardoned felon right i've been pardoned by the governor um I'm now on the board of directors 
at Volunteers of America, the treatment center that saved my life, dude. I'm on the board of directors and I advise the CEO <laughs> on on best practices and the best right. options. You know what I'm saying? Like just yeah. this process has a way of putting you right back on track. So, but what blows my mind is so now I, I found myself in that place, right? Dollar, I've been so fortunate in business um, uh, since then. And I'm in a position to where I, you know, I built a studio in my basement, in the basement of my house with my own hands. And like, there's, you know, I have a lot invested in this and it's, it's time for me to get to really create and express myself. Like I've always wanted to my whole life, man, I'm a dad. So I had to, you know, there was a lot of uh, self-sacrifice to where I, I stood down so that I could uh, create, provide and, and be a father and a husband. Right. And, and now I find myself in this situation with work-life balance and finances that, man, I, I got to build a studio. I got to do, I got to do what I wanted to do. I get to do what I want to do. And now I'm in the situation where while well, I'm on the board of directors, can, can Ricky green be dollar green? You know what I'm saying? Like, can, can they know? Right. And, and, right. and, and I, you know, I have this friend Sherman who, who is, <laughs> it's crazy because he's a, uh, he's a liaison between um, people and, it's a, he's a lobbyist, I think is, is the term, but <laughs> right. um, which sometimes but, can come with a little bit of a uh, bad, bad. Uh, uh, yeah. And I don't, and I, you know, because I'm not big into politics, I don't get it. Um, I mean, I do get it, but like this guy lobbying just, is important, but there's also some shady mofos out there, just like with anything else in any business or whatever. But exactly. You know, and this of, dude is not that like, bad rap. Yeah. This dude is solid, bro. And yeah. So, you know, that's how I met him because he's advising us on, you know, uh, talking points when we are in the presence of political figures, right? He's advising the board. That's how I met this guy. Um, Come to find out Sherman's in the film industry, bro. And he's, he's, he's like a producer of films and, and has this film company. And some of the films have touchy subjects like, uh, you know, the stories about a guy who, who's on cocaine and selling cocaine and, and you know, some, some very controversial stuff. And so I'm looking at this guy who I view as professional and he always has a suit on and he's always in this room with these people in these suits. Right. And, yeah. and I realize, and I'm talking to him and I'm, and I'm expressing to him my concern about dollar green. Yeah. And, and what he had to say, like really helped me out big time because it's, it's like, it's a creative bro. Like who cares? Who, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? If they don't, who care? If they don't like it, it's like, do, do. And, and I've always believed that do what makes you come alive. Right. Yeah. And what makes me come alive is creating and creating music and video. And, and I'm going to keep doing that. And I'm okay with the consequences. Yeah. I'm okay, and, I, and, you know, I'm hoping that, that, that there's not a huge negative impact on me from that. But if there is, I'm willing to accept it. Yeah. And um, because because it's really about owning my truth and Dollar Green is Ricky Green. They're not different. They're not separate. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, that's a I I think that there's a a couple of things here. First off, in the overall scheme of things, that is uh that is true. And that's a really good place to be, to be able to be in a place where you can feel solid in your foundation to say, 
I am who I am. And if it hurts me, it hurts me. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. That's number one. And then also, you know, having uh, understanding that sometimes people don't have that, um, I say privilege, but they don't have the ability to, for example, I just imagine the person that, you know, they're desperate financially and for their family and they decide to take all the music down because they need that 50 grand. And also think of that same person that sometimes over years of being in sobriety, that sometimes we'll make a decision uh, that we go against who we are only to down the road going, you know what? I'm not going to make that decision no more. I'm only going to go all in on who I am. And so like just this idea that the longer we're in recovery, that sometimes our, uh, you know, our priorities change, but it's a really good place to be. And that's kind of where I've always been, which is I haven't had the negative consequences of telling people I'm a recovering drug addict and I'm in recovery and I volunteer in these areas. It's never been a negative. I've never had a negative uh, consequence behind that. Uh, but just understanding that not every, that there's a lot of people that have you included. Um, it's just because the other thing I, th- I think about too, Ricky, is like since I go for my job, I go into uh, I go into schools and and county services and police departments and fire departments, and I'll be talking to someone and they be they like I go on this rant about the importance of sharing our story or let people know that we're an ally and we can advocate for people in mental health and addiction. And they lean forward and goes, Hey, I've been sober 10 years and nobody knows it. Nobody at my work knows it. Nobody at my school knows it. I'd be mortified if my, if my parents, the parents of the, of my school found out. But my argument is like people that are in recovery that have a solid foundation of recovery, like they're an asset to any organization. For sure. But, But most people, most organizations don't know it because we're keeping our stories quiet or the people that are in recovery are perpetuating the stigma because they're too embarrassed and ashamed to say anything about it. So you're, you're exactly it's a, right. It's a, it's a crazy, crazy situation. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, um, uh, about what we were talking about before we got on the call about uh, spiritual, uh, the r- ritual of spirit and and, what and it was based off of i go through this process of i do a ritual or i do a uh, you know i wake up early i pray i meditate i journal i read some recovery literature i get my mind right i go on about my day it usually quails the fear and insecurity not that it's not there but it's less i'm productive but then i go into this thing of like you know i don't i don't need to meditate today or i don't need a journal today and before i know it it's been weeks or months and I'm I've backed myself into a corner emotionally where all I'm doing is beating myself up. I'm going back to this worthlessness, insecurity, uh, low self-esteem. And I, I kind of wonder how did I get here? And it's all attached to me, not enriching and enlarging my spiritual life. Um, so why don't, why don't you talk a little bit about that, what, what your routine looks like or uh, why it is that you still have to be diligent around your recovery and spiritual life. Um, what are your Man, thoughts on that? Dude, it's, it's, it's so crazy. Um, the, 
Oh, yeah. So the um, I find I perform best on all levels in every aspect of my life and all the hats that I wear when I wake up before everyone in my house and I have coffee before everyone is awake and I, I'm, I'm alone and I, I talk to God as I understand God. And, and that's like the known power of the universe. That's how I understand God is that we all understand him differently, but it's the same energy and same power. Um, yeah. And I spend time with that and I stretch and I, and, and I, I go for a jog and I listen to sometimes it's like uh, affirmation stuff that I listen to when I jog that I yeah. repeat, you know, affirmations to myself. And sometimes it's, it's just rowdy gangster rap and, and I go in and sometimes I listen to dollar green music even depending on right. what's going on. Um, but, and then I come in and I get a shower and then it's time, you know, so now I've, I've really taken that time out for myself and, and then it's time for me to, I struck I time blocked, right. I, I was a realtor for a year and they taught me about blocking my time and how much more productive I could be. So what I did was I take that first part of my day and that's for me. Well, at, you know, when school was in before COVID-19, Jesus, that's a whole nother podcast. Um, but so when school was in, so I had all my time to myself to be, get centered and get ready. And then from, uh, six to seven, that was dad time. There was no phone. There was no anything, but me being a dad and getting two kids ready for school, two little boys. And so so what changes when I, when I choose to do that, everything changes, Preston, like I, I'm not frustrated. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm all in, I'm of maximum service to those little dudes and it goes good. They're prepared for their day and their day gets started off right because they had support and, um, oh man. And then my, my productive day at work, I'm just on one, bro. Like I'm, 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 I have energy. I'm going, I'm focused. I get so much done. It's so good. Well, what happens ultimately I'll do that. And I, you know, I'm 14 years sober and that's still the struggle is to do that every day. And it's so good. It's so rewarding. Um, and then I find myself there, you know, something will happen where, um, whether it's, I started, I started recording a song because music, as much as I want to do it, it's, it's where it fits right now in my life is it starts at 9 PM where I get to do music. You're right. I'm, I'm, I'm spent by the time I get to do create music. (laughs) Right. Right. So, so, you know, sometimes I'll get in a really good spot with that. And before I know it, it's midnight or 1am and I'm going to bed, but I I had to do that because I wanted to get to that place with whatever it was I was creating. And in the morning when that 530 alarm hits, I hit the snooze button. And now, now I'm waking up at seven and it's time to go. I barely have time to brush my teeth and and, and get to work right to to my Mm -hmm. commitments. So, and then what I find is that becomes my new routine is, I'll stay up till midnight or one o'clock and boom, boom, boom. And then now all of a sudden each day I feel this, this distance, this disease. That's what they taught me in treatment too. This away from, yes, away from comfort. Right. Um, And it it grows. Right. And I feel uh, less and less accountable. That shame story starts to creep back in and I feel, you know, less and less and just more, it just gets heavier and heavier. And it takes something radical to, for me to like start it over again. And, and that's what, that's the growing edge for me now is just this self-discipline, man. Like, God, if I can't imagine how great everything would be if I was able to commit and actually pull off doing that every day. And you know, there's also this, this mercy and grace that I have to have with myself and realizing, but th- dude, there's also an accountability piece that is very real. And yeah, yeah, so that's what I got to say about 
<laughs> what you, you just know, said. and that's kind of the that that that's the thing. And I don't know if you heard the podcast I did about um, Eric Thomas, the hip hop preacher, and he did a. Uh, I'm on his community text. If you're not on there, uh, look it up. He's got a text platform, and he sends texts out a couple times a week or whatever. But he was talking about motivation and discipline and he goes it was funny too because he's like you know 365 days you might only be motivated 340 days i was like geez that dude's i mean he's assuming everybody's motivated all the time (laughs) i'm like i ain't getting no 340 of uh, motivation but but what his point was is it's easy it's easy to do crap when you're motivated and you're inspired and you want to do it and you got the energy but what about when you're not what about when you're not motivated you don't have the energy and you're not inspired He's like, that's where you have to rely on your discipline. And one of the probably humbling things that I have to admit, and it's important to say it out loud, is I was much more disciplined in the first 10 years of my sobriety than I am now. Yeah, I, I, you know, I have I benefited greatly from being forced to go to treatment, to be forced to get a paper sign, to be forced to go, um, to have jail hanging over my head and to go to meetings every day. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say I went to seven to 14 meetings a day for probably four years solid. And when I quote unquote cut back, I cut back to like three to five. And so those first five to 10 years of my recovery, like I was so disciplined and diligent and then i got some some of the residue of recovery which is i went to college and i got the relationship and i got the job and i got to experience a lot of the things that come with getting my life together but what also has happened is i'm not as desperate as i once was i'm not as scared of using drugs and alcohol as i once was yeah so i kick my feet up and i like to operate out of self-propulsion and i like to use my i like i want to use the knowledge that i have to uh the i I like to use the knowledge and experience to to replace the spiritual practice that i must do if i'm able if i'm going to be able to parent and husband and work the way that i have in my mind which is not be on edge, not be short tempered, to be diligent, to, to, to execute, to be compassionate. And I, I'm, I'm relying on knowledge for spiritual work and it's not working. And I, based on what you and I talked about before, this is I backed myself into a corner over the last week, a couple of weeks or months where I've just piled on the self-pity and the guilt and the shame and the, and the worthlessness. And I've created it myself. And it and the the first little chink is I sleep in, I don't get up, I don't do my meditation, and I think I can do it, go without it for a couple of days, and a couple of days turns into a couple of weeks, and then I'm backed into a corner and I'm stressed and I'm and I'm not being the person that I desire to be. Um and it's because I don't want to do the shit, Ricky, that I did early in recovery. I don't want to have to do that diligent work in prayer and meditation. I don't want to have to work on it no more. Yeah. I want to, I want to do what I want to do and I want to do it and still get all the benefits of the work. Yep. <laughs> people, you know, people say, why do you still go to meetings? You've been sober for so long. Why do you still go to meetings? Well, that's why. 
That's why, because I will back myself into a corner because it's not about the drugs and the alcohol. It's about the it's about life and it's about the habits and about how do you become the person you want to be. And I do every day. I still left my own devices. I still will struggle and I'll be someone that I'm embarrassed or ashamed about. And then and oftentimes in the name of recovery, because I know so much. And yet at home when nobody's looking, I'm acting a fool. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, my dude, we've probably bumped up on about two hours. Everybody says they're not going to take two hours, but we always take that long. And I, uh, and I'm really grateful for the connections that you and I made have made. And I'm really grateful for the, the relationship that we're building over the phone. And, um, and I want to just thank you for coming on and, and sharing a bit of your story. And I'd love to have you on again at some point. Yeah, man, let's do it. Hopefully we could get another one around the time face off comes out. Um, uh, yeah, cool. for sure. And why don't you plug some of the stuff you do? Something you didn't mention is your uh, is your photography business. Um, uh, why don't you plug all your stuff? I want to make sure that, that people here know how to get a hold of you and know all the things that you're that you're doing, so they can look you up. Yeah, for sure. Online, the Instagram, I guess, is my mainstay. Instagram and Facebook. Um, so Instagram is at Dollar Green Verified, um, and then uh, the I have the photography one which is x action shots with a z um so i'm active on both of those and then of course you can find me on facebook um but yeah i I would love to connect with more people and that's what that's how we met man i started focusing on like like like-minded people on those social channels as opposed to just randomly being on them i started wanting you know like what if i can connect with like-minded people everywhere and um so i'm glad i did that because this is cool um but yeah like uh, i'd love to your action shots are you go to baseball uh, and sporting events and take pictures of kids and then uh, and then trick them out and and, and uh, sell yeah. them to parents. Is that right? Yeah, we're America's sports photography experts. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's awesome. It's super fun. Um, and I get when you see the Instagram, you'll kind of get a better idea of that. But um, the uh, yeah, so I, we I, we go to tournaments and we shoot them in action. So we make we make them into the superstars that they believe they are already. So we make it real life. Um, yeah, they're they're, really they're good looking. Check check uh, uh, check that out. So um, so anyway, I'll put some of your stuff in the in the description. But man, I uh, I appreciate you and uh, and I really have enjoyed this and and I enjoyed connecting and and we'll talk soon, my man. Awesome, man. All right, thank you. All right, my dude. Later. All right. Yo, fam, thanks for hanging around. And as always, if you were thinking of someone while you were listening to this episode that you think would absolutely benefit from hearing it, take a screenshot, send it over, share the episode with them. And always remember, uh, if you haven't already, give us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify. I love you. Holler.